0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we are stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, as you know. We always have a special guest. Those who have been a huge influence on our cultural life. And this week, it's going to be the turn of Fayette Hauser, one-time member of the psychedelic hippie theatre group, The Cockettes. Plus, so much more. This is the interview that I did a few days ago to find out more about Faye's incredible life. And it is incredible. So, sit back, relax, enjoy. This could just change your life. Anyway, Faye, the early years. Give us some more background.
1: I was born in upstate New York, yes. And so I grew up on the East Coast. And... The East Coast was very sophisticated. I grew up very close to New York in New Jersey. And so New York, Manhattan was only 50 miles away. And um, when I was in high school, I used to take the bus into Manhattan all the time and just walk around the city. And I really sought out all the new modern things that were going on. I mean, you had the most modern fashion fashion going on. And then you had the, uh, underground films. There was a, a film theater on, it was near 14th street called the variety arts. It's actually, it was a porno theater and it's the theater in taxi driver when he takes, uh, his girlfriend into the theater and they watch a porno movie. That's the variety, that's the variety arts theater. But it was also where all the underground films were shown like Jonas Mikas and Jack Smith and, Stan Brackage and so I used to go there all the time and watch the films, and and uh, John Vaccaro, the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. I sought out all that stuff, and because it was so boring in New Jersey, (laughs) and I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to know what was going on, and I would go to the gallery. So that's what I was doing in high school, and. So then I went to art school in Boston, which was extremely radical in in the uh, mid late 60s. And it was there was a lot of it was a a folk crowd, but it was also a lot of people with radical speeches. And we had teachers that were radical. I mean, I was at BU and Howard Zinn was there at the time. So I was taught, you know, I was sort of brought along in the radical way. So it was kind of organic for me when I I got out of school to just gravitate to San Francisco. Yes. And yeah, so um, I mean, there was a lot of artists in San Francisco and intellectuals. That was really the crux of the society there. Uh, It was formed by educated intellectuals and scientists because they were the first ones that got the acid. So And they gave it all out. So it came from the intellectual community and it filtered on down and so so there was just a lot of those people were in san francisco and by the time i got there in 68 it was in full bloom it was fantastic i never wanted to leave i thought it would never end you know i thought this is it this is the new world here it comes so so, uh, so on a
0: very simplistic level from from sort of what i'd sort of read and researched i mean there has that element that the, the, the sort of the New York kind of East Coast had that really sort of punk and edgy kind of quality that the Velvet Underground and Andy's factory, you know, Warhol's factory and all those characters who all wanted to be superstars taking a lot of speed and being quite sort of a right. bit, bit hard. Because I did an interview with Tony um, Sonetta a couple of weeks ago and he said that the, the kind of the general humour, it had that kind of, gay bitchiness which was really relentless you had to be right on it to uh, cope with that kind of quality but then on the west coast we we get that idea that it is kind of peace love and everyone's going to live in a community and grow vegetables so did you did you sort of feel quite you know when you did that move did it feel quite different to you did you feel like you were leaving one scene or was it not quite that simple when you were there
1: Yes, it was very different. the East Coast to the West Coast. um because also, when I was about seventeen, I met Andy Warhol and because at that time, there were all these discos and fabulous discos called, like Andine, and there was one called Lanter D. And so really the the artists, the writers, uh, photographers, they would all go to these these discos. And uh, so I met Andy Warhol and his crew. And he asked me to come up there and do a film. And so when I was 17, I was in an Andy Warhol film. And I didn't know anything. But he was wonderful. You know, I I mean, I found his loft, the factory. I was so shy. I knocked on the door. And Andy Warhol answered the door. And I I looked around. And he said, oh, come in, come in. And then he had two stools. He put two stools at one end of the loft. And he said, come sit here with me and we're going to watch and you can ask me any question you want. Just ask me anything about all these people. And of course, they were raging on one side of the loft. All these guys were doing the silk screens of those four flower prints that were going to a show in Canada. And on the other side was a couch and all these chairs and all the freaks were raging on the couch. And I said and one of them. Marie Menken, she was talking a blue streak. And I said, well, why is she talking so much? And he said, well, she's on speed. Have you ever heard of that? And I said, no. And he said, well, uh, it's kind of like diet pills. Have you ever had a diet pill? And I said, oh, yeah, I have. And he he said, well, that's it. So it went like that. So that's How I was introduced to drugs by Andy Warhol at 17. So, um, but then I saw uh, a Life magazine spread of uh, Irving Penn did of all the tribes in San Francisco. And I was so impressed because they looked like they were pioneers and they were living in a different world. They were so completely different from what was going on in the East Coast. And that made me want to go out there. So yes. I actually, uh, you know, I was actually looking to go to Europe, but I, I went out West because a friend of mine put up an, uh, like a art colony in a barn in Colorado, uh, in the summer of 68. And I said, well, I'll go there and then I'm going to go to Paris. So I went to the barn, but It was like too much like school. So I put a tent in the woods and there I was in the woods like a plein air painter. You know, I had all that kind of fantasy going. And then I was picked up hitchhiking by Nancy Gurley, who was the um, wife of James Gurley from Big Brother and the Holding Company. And that changed my life because she was it was like she had walked out of that Irving Penn photo, picked me up and completely educated me. She she had a PhD in English literature. So when she spoke, I mean, it was like Jane Austen telling you what was going on in San Francisco. And so we walked in the woods for months. And so then I just followed her. I mean, she absolutely changed the course of my life. Uh, and then I, I was in the scene. And people moved around all the time in San Francisco. It was very much the gypsy life. So. Yeah. I ended up in a house with artists and we were all artists in one house and we were, we were very much into dressing up. Uh, so we would dress up because everybody, no one dressed like the rest of America. There was no mainstream clothing at all. It was, it was definitely a parallel world that was outside of the mainstream. No one had a television. No one went to the movies. No one bought clothes in shops. Um, we really recreated ourselves because everyone was transformed by, by LSD. I mean, psychedelics. That was what everyone was taking. The whole city. Well, so, well, our group and you know the, yes, the counterculture absolutely. group, yeah. So,
0: so so, yeah. so, so, sixty-seven from my from sort of memory. I, I was only I was only three at the time. But from <laughs> re- research, but you had in January you had the gathering of the tribe in San Francisco, didn't you? Where you had Timothy Leary doing his tune in turn on drop out and you had the grateful dead and everybody was getting very excited i think that was golden gate wasn't it and then in in, oh, the, yeah. in the uk you had in the yeah June June or July at that that uh, same year sixty seven you had the fourteen hour Technicolor Dream at Ali Pally so oh. six, sixty seven seemed to be a very pivotal year as sort of a high a high point in that kind of the counterculture oh, absolutely. so six yeah. sixty eight you the, the sort of the, the you were sixty
1: seven not... was when people realised this was someone uh, a friend of mine. Um, She was one of the producers of the Trips Festival in San Francisco, and that was very pivotal because she told me that there were pockets, small pockets of people all over, like in the city and outside of the city that were doing things. And they decided to set up this event, and they thought a few people were going to come. 10,000 people came, and that's when they realized there was more than just a few people, that it really was an enormous burgeoning movement. And after that came the be in and the gathering of the tribes. This That was when people realized that it, it was a bigger thing than, than just their small group of people. Um, and that happened in 60. Well, no, actually that happened before that. I think it happened in 66. So by 67, people were realizing that it was a powerful movement and people were going in that direction. It was as if that everyone accepted the power of what they were doing and moved forward. And that must've been the same trajectory in England. Um, But I was in New York after I got out of school, I had an apartment in the village. And um, so, so the summer of love 67 uh, I was on 10th street in Manhattan and there were hippies. 10th Street was where the the hippie enclave was. But you know, Manhattan swallows up everything and it's still Manhattan. So it wasn't as wasn't anything like San Francisco. It didn't take over the city by any means. But um, so I didn't really get to San Francisco until the following year, 68. But it was banging on when i got there
0: yeah. it was in
1: full bloom it was fabulous so because it was right it... up my alley <laughs>
0: absolutely so now so in that period i mean obviously we got the music at that time but there was a lot of i know in the uk you had a lot of these kind of happenings where people no performance art that's it performance art where right. was a lot of stuff going right. down in london i
1: remember happenings there yeah uh, they were in manhattan too they were great yes
0: yeah. and then you had a lot of the people who had got into the beat generation with you Know like um, Jack Kerouac and uh, you know Ginsberg, and then there was also the comedy of that period as well, which with people like Lenny Bruce. Right. But, there, but there was also theatre companies like the Fire Sign Theatre Company, who was a surreal right. comedy troupe. So were were you right. aware of those those things that were happening, like Tom Leary and people like that?
1: Oh, yeah, Tom Lehrer. Well, my brother loved Tom Lear. And <clears throat> when I when I told my parents I was in a theater group, I tried to explain it to them. My dad said, is it like the Firesign Theater? So because my dad was from a family of artists, so he loved it. And, uh, you know, my brother was also a musician and he loved it that we were both artists. So um I I never saw the Firesign Theater, but I certainly was into Monty Python. I don't know if they came along later, but the UK had a very special kind of humor going on. It was very surreal. And everyone, you know, people loved it here. I mean, our theater was a bit different from that because... We were a little more balls out when it comes to uh, being outrageous. You know, we really kind of took it to the next level yes. with the cockettes. Yeah. <laughs> so when you, when when the cockettes
0: uh, uh, started, did they ever... Um, yes. So so what was the sort of moment that, that you brought a troupe together? I mean, who were the main players or shakers of that?
1: Well, we were artists living... We just... It kind of came together organically because uh, I was living in in an apartment, small apartment with uh, this guy, Nikki Nichols, who was a designer and Harlow, who she was part of the uh, she was a plaster caster. And so she was a performer and um, she, we were dressing up all the time. So the three of us, there was an earthquake and our, our uh, apartment, which was kind of tacky, uh, was unlivable. And so one of the members, Gary Cherry, he brought us over to Scrumbly's house. And that was when we all moved in. And it was really a house of artists. And it was a very organic thing. Scrumbly was a musician. Uh, I was a painter. John Flowers was a painter. Nikki a designer. Link was there. He was a writer. And We were all going out together as a pack, all dressed up. And Hibiscus had come from New York, but he was living. He came with Allen Ginsberg and uh, Peter Orlovsky. He, He came to San Francisco with them. And Allen Ginsberg knew Irving Rosenthal, who had a commune called Cauliflower, but it was very strict irving rosenthal was a big disciplinarian and everybody had to toe the line but hibiscus started in that commune and started taking acid and everybody was kind of had already been in san francisco for at least a year so everybody was really transformed into their uh, divine self so to speak so we were all already there and when hibiscus saw us because his dream was to create a very psychedelic form of avant-garde theater. So he came to us. Uh, He came to the house one day and said, I want to move in. And and, uh, I remember it fiercely. Um, He was such a divine creature. He was absolutely gorgeous. He had robes and a big wreath on his head and an arm full of flowers. And he presented himself to us. And then he presented the idea. He said, I think we should all be on the stage. And so he laid it out. And within months, I mean, this was in the fall of 69. And it happened really quickly. Within months, we were on the stage in the Palace Theater. And um, he had found a theater. I mean, he was on it every day. He was very, very intense. And he found a really, really run down theater in the Fillmore, which was the funky black neighborhood. And um, so we were going to do it there, but (laughs) it fell through. I, you know, I don't want to go on with the story, (laughs) but it, it kind of fell through. And so then, and it fell through and it was around Christmas and he was determined to do it on New Year's Eve, the new theater for the new decade. He was very into that. And so he was desperate to find a theater. And there was a theater in North Beach called The Palace that Sebastian was was a cinephile and he was presenting the nocturnal dream show there at midnight. It was the first midnight movie. And he would show all these films. So after you went dancing at Winterland and this was our life, I mean, we did this like every day. So there we are at Winterland and you're still high when the when the music ends and so you head off to North Beach and you go to the palace and then you take more acid because it's a total you're in a total safe place with all the freaks and you can watch the movie, you can go up in the balcony and have fabulous sex with whoever you meet. It was just divine. So Link said, "Can we do something on New Year's Eve on the stage?" and he would have live performers when it was a holiday you know any kind of holiday he would have you know have films and people so he said sure do whatever you want so hibiscus said well we'll just do one small thing this will just be a taste this will be a preview of what we're going to do and one of the one of the acts it was just a small act because the original name he wanted it to be called the angels of light free theater but so one of the ideas that we had was a satire, a riff on the Rockettes called the Cockettes. You know, that was yes. just like one funny thing that we were going to do. So Hibiscus said, well, let's do that. We'll do a big can-can and that will introduce us to what's coming for 1970. So uh, Link ran up to Sebastian and said, OK, we're going to do the Cockettes. So then Sebastian got on the microphone, uh, on the speaker, and said, and now the Cockettes, and we just came blasting out on the stage uh, and did this can-can that was completely wild. We had a – he brought a little record player. We played a 78-old can-can record, and everybody was on their feet screaming because it was so fabulous. And uh, then the name went around town like wildfire. Nobody could stop saying it It, because it was such a perfect name. And even though Hibiscus fought it, you know, after he was keep trying to. No, no, we're the angels of light free theater. And I mean, no, no, you're the cockettes. So (laughs) so the default name completely stuck. And, you know, yeah. And uh, yeah, but even the marquee we so we started performing once a month. At the palace theater and then we performed other places too wherever they wanted us we would perform on the steps of the sprawl hall at berkeley um we would we would just do performances everywhere even in the street we performed in ross alley in chinatown with our little chinese type of show It, it was great we just went everywhere and did it and but uh the manager of the theater of the palace didn't want to put the name You know, the name was too radical, and he didn't want to put cockettes on the marquee. But then uh, Herb Cain, who had the most... I mean, he had the most fabulous column in the Chronicle. He was It was the column that everybody read every morning in the San Francisco Chronicle, and he started talking about the show. Like, you must go see this. It's the best thing happening in town. And he put the name Cockettes in the Chronicle. So then the theater manager, he said, well, if it's in the newspaper, then he started putting it on the marquee. I thought it was so funny. Wow. But, uh, yeah, so... I mean, they didn't even want to put it in, you know, people were very, it was straight. I mean, the mainstream was so straight at the time. It was 1970. But in a way, it was helpful because there was a sensibility in the country that it was the youth movement. People were very positive about the the children, number one, being educated, everyone was really well educated. And number two, that you should travel and find yourself and find what you want to do and create. They wanted children to create a great future. This was the boomer generation, the post-war generation. So they were leaving it up to us to create this, this new, new thing. But of course, when we did create the new thing and it wasn't about capitalism it you know they didn't like that <laughs> the capitalists said oh no no oh no no that's not what we want but meanwhile you could travel around it was very Hitchhiking was the thing. People, people would pick up, pick you up, and it would be safe. They'd go, "Oh, look how cute you look! Oh, come on, where do you want to go? You know, this. I mean, really, it was very safe. And it was only cost about fifty dollars to fly to New York. There were special, you know, teenage rates to go anywhere. So, you know, I would uh, get a, a kilo, a key. Uh, it was called a brick. Of Mexican weed and wrap it in a t-shirt and throw it in the suitcase and go to New York and stay with my brother Tim and uh, sell lids and that would finance um, my theater life and all all the uh, artistic stuff we were doing so there was a lot it was much freer to move around and people went everywhere in the world yes. uh, there there were pockets uh, every the beach at goa was famous and people went to the uk everybody traveled all over the place because it was so free so we had an enormous amount of personal freedom which that got that's what's clamped down now that people don't have the personal freedom which is what gives you time <clears throat> to develop your art i mean once we started doing the theater that's all we did we were we started creating the shows so in a in a short amount of time in a three year period we really got to a very well honed place with our aesthetic and especially with our drag and everyone was very individuated in the Cockettes. I mean, I like to say we had one of everything. It was a a really wide range of people. There were people in there that if we hadn't come together at that moment in San Francisco, if I had stayed in New York and just gone on like some normal trajectory, I would never in my life have met those people. You know what I mean? So it was a very special group of people. And so everyone had their own... definitive version of our aesthetic, but yet our group consciousness, our, our, our group aesthetic was very solid and everybody knew what it was. We all knew what it was. We all knew what the core idea was. And then we ran with it and everybody, because the stage was like an experimental place, it was a, an empty canvas. So you would bring your A game to the theater. The first year was so magical. It was incredible. That was where we, we, we developed it. It was totally experimental. Uh, we would have a theme for the show, and everybody would bring their version of whatever the theme was and then we would do it on the stage and people would run on and do a song and then somebody would dance across the stage behind them or you know there was absolutely we totally broke through the traditional theater form and the audience was part of it too Um, they definitely had a part and everybody came dressed up to the theater screaming and carrying on and if somebody wanted to jump on stage they did So it was that experimental part that allowed us to develop something that was really new and different. And especially with our, with our drag, you know, we, we took that to a very high point. Um, You know, but it was so far forward. It was so futuristic. I mean, the whole society was so, it was like a keyhole peek into an incredibly fabulous, positive future. And, People are looking at it now because we were so happy and we had such great lives. And people are looking at that counterculture now because they want to know how we lived and how we were so happy. Um, whenever I do events and I talk and there's a QA, that's what they ask. They, well, how did you do that? You know? So, um, because one, I'm one glad thing, it's come around. Yes, well, absolutely. People have to know they yeah. do. But so, one thing that
0: that sort of often happens, and and and. Yes, it's kind of almost good. You know, a scene starts and, it, and it's all very beautiful and optimistic and you're going to be best friends forever. And then you have the honeymoon period and then things start to sort of get a little bit sort of tricky. Um, and then sometimes often, you know, especially if there's a scene in a community, you know, everyone's kind of very open, which is lovely. And I expect in the 60s even more so because there wasn't that much to look back and say, oh, what happened you know, in the previous decade, because it was still so, the youth movement, the tea movement and the counterculture and the alternative movement was so new. But then, you know, you get characters who come into a scene because they think, wow, I can really exploit it, even though they might not look at it and exploit it. I'm talking about, you know, I suppose the extreme would be a Charles Manson sort of character. How did you avoid that kind of obvious pitfall that happens for the next 50, 40 years, you know, because I remember in the 70s, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, this scene was really good. And then, oh, something. And then some people got involved. And then, yes, yeah, so, you know, it ends badly. And then in the 80s, you know, you get people getting a scene. It's all going well. And, if, and there's a sort of a naivety and an innocence that often is the problem. So how did you in the coquettes with such an outrageous kind of, uh, kind of gig not have something horrendous happen
1: well, yeah, there was a lot of exploitation of it by the time the 70s came around, the early 70s. I mean, Chet Helms, uh, he told me that it, the, the music, uh, the the record business is is what came in and ruined it, really, because they plucked people out of their environment, which was a safe environment, and took them into a mainstream element, which they, was completely foreign and, and too far afield of the art. and. I mean, it ended disastrously. That's exactly what happened to Janice Joplin. She was plucked out of Big Brother, which was her safe haven, and um, brought into the mainstream. And they did not understand it. They didn't understand her. She wasn't safe any longer. And then she died. Um, but as far as, yeah, there, Charles Manson was an anomaly because he was a career criminal and that happened in Los Angeles. Los Angeles at the time was different from San Francisco. The kind of uh, love, positive, creative environment that was in San Francisco really was a separate pocket from anywhere else in the country because the counterculture, other cities kind of absorbed it in their own way and... My my boyfriend and I came to L.A. in I think 1970 uh, just for a visit because one of our friends had moved to Venice Beach and so we came here just to see what it was like. And it was uptight. I mean, there was a there was a lot of hippies there was, but it wasn't the same. You couldn't walk around on the street because you'd get arrested. And uh, I mean, we were there for three days and fled because we went onto the beach across the street from our friends place and took our clothes off and laid on the beach. And I woke up, I opened my eyes, and there was a cop standing over me. And uh, we put on our clothes, got back in the car and drove back to San Francisco. So, um, of course, there was a lot of that. And as far as the Cockettes goes, there were people in, everyone in the Cockettes had their own thing going. By the time you know, three years is really the kind of span for almost everything that gets uh, that has a peak. And um you you can look at just about everything, and it's a three year. I've seen this for years now. there's like a it's kind of like a three year span. So by the end of three years, uh, there was an element in the cockettes that wanted wanted it perfect. You know, we were not result oriented. We did not want to be perfect. Um so myself, Link, definitely, John Flowers, the core, the core group wanted to go on with Hibiscus, doing it the way we were doing it. But there were other members that wanted it to be more perfect. They were more ego based and they wanted to display themselves as, uh, you know, the perfect creature that you can admire. And yes. so that was kind of what killed it. Uh, and but it was it was not. You know, there was no aggression about it. We we all, we all were on the stage. This was in, around April, I would say, or March, right around this time of year. And uh, the energy had just dissipated, and we just all kind of knew it. And we all still loved each other. I mean, the love we felt for each other has continued to this day because we knew each other on such a core level that, uh, you know, the cockettes that have survived, we're still together you know what i mean yes and we still have the same love and respect for each other and whatever any of the other cockettes are doing i support them they support me we support each other in whatever endeavor we're doing
0: and when you look um, at, i was going to say you know because of the the theater of the ridiculous uh, with john right. um Picaro, i mean when you look back at his his life was he i mean what's your memory of him you know because he seems to be such a pivotal person
1: Yeah, John Vaccaro with his Playhouse of the Ridiculous really created that aesthetic of having starting at a certain point on on the stage with something and then letting it go wherever it went. Uh, And Hibiscus had been involved in that and I had seen it. So I knew what Hibiscus was talking about when he presented that. But we also had the influence Mm -hmm. of the living theater, which came through town. And uh, they brought people up on stage from the audience. So that was a very symbiotic experience. And so we thought, yes, we want to do that as well. So we had several influences like that. But he had the same, John Vaccaro had the same issue. I mean, I think they were, that happened in a three-year period. And he had Charles Ludlam. He was doing it with Charles Ludlam. And then they broke apart because Charles Ludlam wanted a more traditional theatrical form even though he was uh outrageous but he still had scripts they rehearsed um he was the star and everybody uh did what they were told and that became uh the theater the ridiculous the ridiculous theatrical company and they were all friends with us too i was i was very good friends with them individually they were fantastic but they were you know, Charles Ludlam wanted it to be traditional theater. And um, so the people in the Cockettes that wanted to go that way, then other people went in another way, and Hibiscus reformed the Angels of Life Free Theater. And he first did it at this, uh, in a loft on uh, 330 Grove Street. And Link and I participated in that because none of us, we didn't care about the politics or what other people were doing. We just wanted to do what Hibiscus was doing. We wanted to continue doing this experimental theater because we still had so many ideas that we wanted to present on the stage. And then um, there were other theater groups that formed that were kind of um, in the same trajectory that we were in. And one of them was in Seattle called Z Wiz Kids. And it was begun by Tomato Duplini. Uh, and he had been in the Cockettes. He was in early Cockette shows and became transformed um, through our aesthetic and a whole lot of acid. And he went to Seattle and formed this other group. So now these groups, and including the John Waters family, we would visit each other. And it would be like uh, you know fellow dignitaries coming to visit, we would make a big deal out of it. They would stay with us, we would do shows together. You know what I mean? Um, uh, people in the ridiculous theater, uh, John Brockmeyer. He every summer he would take his vacation in San Francisco and he would stay with us and take acid and that would be his summer vacation. Uh, <laughs> I remember that real well because uh, he was mad for the acid. Uh, and that's another story. But so in the summer of 1970, the Whiz Kids uh, en masse came to San Francisco and they had a video artist, and he was one of the pioneers of that. And so they did a a showing of their videos of their shows. And then we were doing one of our shows. And so they were in it. They were a part of it. And Tomada and I fell in love and um, had a mad, fabulous romance while they were there. But then we were going to New York that year. Oh, this was 71. Okay, this was the summer of 71. Because then we started to prepare to go to New York, and the Whiskers kids went home. And so then Tomato and I are writing letters back and forth, and, oh, I want you to come play with us and all this. So then we went to New York. But when we came back in 72, um, we did about four shows, and that's when it started to dissipate. So Tomato was thrilled. He said, oh, yes, come here. So then I went to... Um, I went to Seattle. But before that, in April, uh, I had met Bette Midler in New York through my brother who was putting together his group, the Manhattan Transfer. And he knew Bette Midler. She was doing shows. They were all doing shows in small theaters. And so um, he you know, he said, oh, Bette, you have to meet my sister. So we met, we got on. So she was going to, this was when Johnny Carson was putting her on the show and she was just beginning. And so she said, why don't you, you know, I really need somebody, uh, you know, going to Las Vegas with Johnny Carson. I'm opening for him and I'm terrified. Uh, Why don't you come and you can, you know, help me with what to wear. And so, (laughs) so that's what I did. And and, uh, this was also, okay, I'm really telling you the tea now. This was also when, when Quaaludes came out. And uh, so where we were living when we came back from New York was around the corner from what we called the Qualude Clinic. So, <laughs> and Quaaludes was yet another drug invented to get you off of the big evil heroin, um, as so many drugs that have been invented uh, were for. Um, but meanwhile, Quaaludes was the most fabulous, fun high. So. We just all got into that drug. But in the meantime, I'm trying to get ready to go. I mean, so everybody would get their drugs at the Quala Clinic and then come over to our house for cocktail time. Right. So, oh, my God. So it was a mad scene as ever. And I'm trying to get ready to go to Las Vegas. It was crazy. So I just thought, I'm just going to put everything in my cock. That's trunk. We all had our own steamer trunk for New York and ship it to Vegas. And so that's what I did. I shipped the Coquette steamer trunk to Las Vegas. And um, it was so crazy that I missed the, the first plane. I was supposed to go there on a Thursday. Totally missed that. So finally, Friday, I'm, oh, I'm getting ready to go and everybody's is going to Vegas. Nobody went to Vegas. And it was, you know, <laughs> your parents and fancy uh, girls with big hair. You know, that was Vegas. It was it was a mob town. So, you know, it was just so unreal. It was this it was totally surreal that I would, you know, one of the cockheads would be going to Vegas. What are you talking about? So, Daniel, um, he rolled these three enormous joints and Wally, who was, you know, really a wild dresser, he he had fantastic outfits that would be like, uh, you know, six feet in diameter when he would come down the street. So he had this big hat and he put all these flowers on it. The hat was fabulous. And Daniel put the three joints in the hat. And he said, now when you get to the dressing room, you whip out the joint and get everybody high and that'll be how you arrive. And I said, fabulous. I love it. So, Finally, I get on the last plane, which was at 2 a.m., and I'm heading out to Vegas. And I had a footlocker with me filled with shoes and all our cockette press. So I get to Vegas, and there's nobody in the airport. And, uh, you know, I go out to the sidewalk looking for a taxi or something, and the footlocker is out on the sidewalk. And I think, oh, I think I'm going to I'm going to have a pee. So I tip back into the into the airport, go into the bathroom. And when I came out, there was a security guard and he grabbed my purse and he opens it up. And there's this enormous bottle of pills that he's never heard of. I mean, it was the biggest bottle of Quaaludes I could even stick in my purse to go to Vegas. Are you kidding? I'm bringing these. <laughs> so immediately I'm whipped up to the office and of course, I had champagne on the plane, so I am totally stoned at this point and I had no idea what was happening. And before I knew it, I was in a police car going in the opposite direction. The lights of Vegas are fading in the distance and I'm in the desert. And of course, what do you do? You burst into tears. And so that's what I did. So meanwhile, all dressed up with six pairs of eyelashes on and they started you know, crawling all over my face. So I get to the police station and they give me one phone call and I call Bette weeping and I'm saying, I don't know what happened. I'm in the police. I'm arrested. Oh, and she says, oh, this is such a straight town. It's just horrible here. We're going to come get you immediately. Well, they wouldn't let her. So I had to stay overnight in the police station. So, of course, I immediately pass out. Oh, but before I passed out. So I'm in the holding cell, and the police open up the footlocker, and they started looking at the Coquette press, and they were in, they were enveloped in that. And I remember had a moment of clarity, and I remembered the joints, and I thought, my God, they're going to find these, and then I'm really in trouble, because quaaludes were still so legal. So I backed into the back of the cell, and I I took the joints out, and I ate them. So by the time they took me out of the holding cell, I was picking picking the leaves out of my teeth, you know. And then after that, I don't remember a thing. And I woke up in this, uh, you know, room full of bunk beds, and I couldn't remember where I was. And there was a window, and I look out, and there's the desert, and there's one of those wedding chapels sitting in the middle of the desert. I thought, now this is a for real hallucination. I've gone mad, and they've institutionalized me. That's what happened, you know. So so then I walk out of that room and then there's like a big room with all these women in it watching television and it's all came back to me. And I sat down on this bench and this woman is next to me reading a religious tract. And I said, oh, my God. And uh, she looks at me and I said, well, you know, why are you here? Oh, she said to me, you know, what are you doing here, honey? And I said, oh, well, you know, drugs, I got arrested. And I said, what about you? And she goes, well, my boyfriend was in the casino and he was gambling and he was gambling. And I told him to stop and he wouldn't stop and he wouldn't stop. So I shot him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> she's a murderer. I'm just a hippie, please get me out of here. So then Bet came and bailed me out. And... Um, She was with this, this man, Bill Hennessy, he was a hairdresser, but he was like a mentor for, because at that time there was no tour support or anything like there was later for anybody that went on tour. So he would go, he helped the Pointer Sisters. He would go with people, with women and help them do these things. So Bill Hennessy and Bette Midler came to bail me out. And so as we're heading to the Sahara, I said, you know, I think I should go home. I don't think this is my town. And I don't think I should stay. And so Bill Hennessy says, well, now let's just go have a drink and talk about it. So we go into this, into the, well, first we went into Caesar's Palace and we sat on the barge. You know, the barge that dips up and down. And we have a drink. And he says, now, Fayette, um, you know, they just, this is a mob town and they just want to know who you are and now they know who you are. and besides, you're with Johnny Carson. he's the man here and you can do whatever you want and you can wear whatever you want. And I thought, hmm now okay, <laughs> that sounds fine to me. so I stayed. So so then I dressed bet and she went out every night. I, I put her in these gold tight gold Capri pants and a corset. And I would put all this, these jewels and Giga paste all over the corset and these, you know, strapless come fuck me pumps. And she tripped out on the stage every night like that. And of course, then I would dress up wild. And Johnny Carson, I would be standing there watching her perform. And I thought she was incredible as she is. And Johnny Carson, I, I would turn around and he would be standing about four feet behind me. he never spoke to me uh you know he stayed so far clear of me and when I you know so then I tripped around the casinos and I would go into the casino and people would give me a wide berth I tell you but at that point I thought well you know here I am and you know you can go f yourself and you know just take it here I am so that's it so um so that was Vegas
0: how long did you stay in Vegas for?
1: Oh, we were there a week. And, you know, a week in Vegas is like two years anywhere else. It's so unbelievable. Um, But the great thing about it, she would do her act. And then we would go, the band and all of us, we would go to the lounges because the great performers were in the lounges. We saw Brenda Lee. We went backstage, talked to Brenda Lee. She was incredible. We saw Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Little Anthony. I mean – all the all the lounge acts were where the really cool people were. So it ended up being fabulous. We had a fabulous time. And uh, so then I came back. And it was when I came back that then I thought, well, that's it. Now I'm going to Seattle. And I, I went to Seattle and uh, spent months with tomato. And, I mean, I, I had no intent of ever stopping what, what we were doing. I was so into it. And so then tomato and I went to New York because – all the underground theater people in New York really, I mean, we very much influenced the underground theater in New York, even though the mainstream had no idea what the hell we were doing and who cared, you know, fuck them. So, you know, what Mick Jagger, I always say the famous line of Mick Jagger, fuck them if they can't take a joke. You know, <laughs> I love that phrase. So then Tomato and I started performing in New York and we were living off the Bowery on 2nd Street and Bowery, and right down the street there was Hilly sweeping the street, just like they show in the movie. That's exactly what he would do every morning because it was the bums. Um, we lived across the street from the, the 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 bums hotel, and that's what was on the street. So he would sweep all the uh, crap off the street, and he he never paid his taxes. So he had to he had a bar called Hilly's and he had to transform that bar into something else to avoid the tax man. So he created CBGB's and they had just put up the awning was brand new. And we met him on the street and he said, Oh, come look, I have a little stage. Cause we were looking around for, you know, places to play. And so there he was with his stage. So, so we started, um, doing theaters there and, Uh, People from the John Waters family came. And then um, Sweet Pam and John came from the Cockettes. And then people from the Kids came. So we started doing theater, and we started there at CBGBs. Uh, We had a show called Savage Voodoo Nuns that we did a few times. And uh, the Ramones' first show was opening for us. Um, And, of course, we loved them immediately. So... Yes. And, and tomato and I, I mean, we went on for a long time doing shows. And then we came to L.A. and we did shows here. And then the whole punk movement was burgeoning.
0: Yes. Um, and and, when, but, and yeah. did you meet Danny Fields at that stage as well, the famous Danny Fields?
1: Danny Fields was the press man for when we went to New York. I met him right out of the airport. Uh, I got on the bus. Danny Fields was sitting in the back of the bus and he said, come here, sit with me. And Danny and I have been lifelong friends ever since. Danny is one of the most fantastic people I've ever met. Uh, And he is the one who orchestrated the opening night, which was the biggest opening night in off off Broadway at that point. I mean, we had 3000 people came to that opening night and of course, did not understand what we were doing at all. And, uh, you know, because they were a passive audience. And, we were not, that's not where we were at. You had to, you had to dig it. You had to get it. Um, and they just thought, oh, well, this is too funky. And they left and the press hated it. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, we opened with the wrong show. That's my take. Because we brought two shows there. And our great show, which was completely original, that Link had written, all original music and lyrics, was Pearls Over Shanghai. So we immediately switch to that show and everybody like uh, all the hipsters and the underground theater people all came back. Uh, so we had packed houses, but the press never came back, you know, yes. but, you know, we didn't really care at all. Um, we were not playing for them anyway, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, we had a great time in New York and other magazines, uh, featured us quite a lot. And there was one Brazilian magazine that had pictures of everyone in the magazine. And it influenced this group that came out a few years, probably in the mid-70s, called Z Croquettes. And they went to Paris. I mean, we felt, Hibiscus definitely, felt that New York was merely a stepping stone to bring our show to Paris but that never happened for us. But it happened for that group called Z Croquettes. Uh, they were essentially a dance troupe, but they looked exactly like it. They have a film out and uh, they sent me uh, a DVD of the film. And some of the people looked so identically like certain people in the coquettes that it was almost like the ghost of that person was in the film. It was really wild when I saw it. But uh, so we ended up being extremely influential. Yes. Regardless well, of the press.
0: Well, because, because, because I mean, the rate that you're moving and, and the amount of work that you're doing and people is quite extraordinary. I've probably never met anybody who's managed to to cram quite so much in without taking breath. I mean, it's quite yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? And also, going from one scene, because I remember talking to Barry Miles, who was really sort of influential in the 60s underground in London and right. had galleries I and, I him, yeah. and, and, and the IT magazine and put on various big shows. But then when I interviewed him, I said, what happened, you know, as you hit the 70s? He said, we were just tired. We were just wanted to, you know, have a break. So, you know, that only... So he was there for sort of, say, five years, and you mentioned three years, which is quite interesting because three to five years seems to be that sort of narrative in mm-hmm. most scenes and most bands and most theatre companies where things are going well mm-hmm. and then, you know, that that sort of goes. But you're, you're sort of gone from the 60s, which was kind of really sort of, you know, the first of, of its type, into sort of so many different worlds of sort of glam Vegas... And then into punk and and New York and CBGB. So again, you know, how how were you emotionally dealing with that? Were you you just one of those people who could just kind of cope with every new thing that happened every day?
1: Well, wherever we went, we created our own world. Um, And when we went to New York, I mean, no one was living downtown like we were in the Bowery. Uh, And at that time, the Lower East Side looked like Berlin after the war, there was all these buildings that were empty and boarded up. And, um, you know, that's where the drug dealers were. It was dangerous to go on the Lower East Side, uh, Avenue A, any any of the alphabet city. You didn't go there. It was extremely dangerous. So and there was no Soho or Tribeca. uh a friend, one of the John Waters people had a loft on J street. So when we first went to New York, we stayed with him, with, uh, Stephen Steven Buteau, um, and everybody, it was almost like the way station cause he had an enormous loft and nobody lived down. You know, it was barren on the, on the weekends. There was no traffic. It was all, um, business, commercial. There were commercial lofts and factories down there and there was nobody on the street. So, um, We would stay on J Street, and then we we would get our own apartment. So, I mean, that's that's how we did it. We just created these environments of our own that we didn't have to interact with the mainstream. And, you know, I managed to carry that on all through the 70s. I was not... It was fabulous for me. I was so happy and I was totally happy with the life and all of uh, the people. We were all in it together. Everybody was an artist and we were all being completely authentic to ourselves, to our art. We were committed to that. It was a commitment. And um, it was only in the beginning of the 80s. It started to become commercial by the mid 80s the mainstream could see the money in it and they started buying off the artists. And for me, I really, I I had to start making money, you know, but I, I didn't ever want to get a job. That was not in the program for me. So I would create, you know, a small business of my own, or I would do freelance jobs. Uh, I did costume design for film and I, what I was also way into my photography. So when I got to LA, I went into uh, like a two two-year degree program for photography to learn large format and darkroom, and um, because I, I, you know, I was doing a lot of photography, but I was learning all on my own. So I was a professional photographer for a while, and also a designer, graphic design. So I mean, that you know, I've never made any money <laughs> you know what i mean i've never had a lot of money but i've always more or less done what i wanted and that's been my life um yes so so in the I so am. so
0: in the but but you know that was the 80s which was obviously and you'd worked your clients you know during that period of photography you're right work with you know the ronin stones which is still pretty one of your, you know, amazing bands. And then in the right. 90s, you, you sort of took up, you know, you, you studied method acting as well. So, so obviously... I did. So obviously you were, you were sort of got an amazing appetite to, to not feel like, oh, I've done it and now I'm going to sit on my laurels because that, that's it. You, you're obviously a person who wants to sort of learn and, and develop and go through that next door and, and start again. Or not start again, but, you know, pick up another gig.
1: Right. Because once things get repetitive for me, or I don't feel as if it's interesting enough, because I'm a Gemini, I have to move on. You know, I I hate being bored. And uh, a lot of things like I was in my method class and that was a three year period and the people, we had one class that continued the same people for three years. And it was almost like a repetition of the coquettes because we got deeply involved with each other and produced like these, you know, we did great work there. Um, but then when I started auditioning, I would, I hated, you know, I started going out on auditions and the material would be so terrible, really awful and i was accustomed we were writing our own material so i was accustomed to that and i would say you know she wouldn't say that here and the director would say shut up (laughs) (laughs) You you know do what i say you know and i that's not me at all you know i'm not gonna do what you want me to do are you kidding so yeah so and i i I know how to do so many other things. So I would wake up of a day and say, well, should I look for an audition? And I go, no, I, th- I think I'd rather uh, make something. You know what I mean? I So I, I just, you know, I sort of petered out on the audition situation, um, which in a way I have a little, I kind of regret because I would love to have gone on uh, in a performance capacity, but I feel like, you know, I'm not dead yet. So that may still happen. Who knows? Yes. Uh, I never know what's going to happen or what's going to come up. Uh, so, you know, it's, now it's... I have this book and we'll see what happens next.
0: So, yeah, So, so on the book, when did you start writing it? I mean, you, you were crowdfunded last year. So had you sort of written it and just needed to um, get the
1: money for it? No, that was also an evolutionary process. I mean, after the Cockheads documentary came out, uh, about six months later, I curated a really big show in San Francisco that had all the photographers because I knew of them all, and I knew how much great work there was that had never been shown. So this was in the fall of two thousand two i I created uh, curated a show called "Low Trash Equals High Art." <laughs> so uh it was just the beginning of when people were beginning to re-examine the counterculture because in the day you know the cockettes were the considered the trashiest people around (laughs) so so, uh i thought yeah now you're gonna love it so so anyway so i curated this big show that was really kind of a lifestyle show it had a, a, a 18 different artists in it and uh it was a big show but then people were not that interested in it so i was never really able to travel the show but um then i started going into writing workshops because i thought you know i want to write about this and so so i did write i started doing the writing and but still you know people were not that excited about it um but when i really started putting together the Cockettes book, and did the crowdfunding. Um, then I started looking around for a publisher, and uh, the publisher, feral House, the the uh, the publisher was Adam Parfrey, and he was a friend of mine. And he said, you know, you can do the book you want to do. And his his books were beautiful. He would use incredible printers, uh, and so that's when we started working on it together. But right after we started working on it, he passed away. He had a stroke and died, and that was a devastation. So it put a large delay on the book and, uh, you know, encountered a lot of problems. But So it took a while, but now it's out, finally. It was really supposed to be out last year, which would have, for me, I would have been able to go on on events, but now, I mean, I was supposed to set up two exhibitions, one here in LA, uh, one in San Francisco, back to back. They would be up now, and I would be doing events in San Francisco. And we had the book fair going on here, which is now postponed to October, and uh, the San Francisco events are postponed till June. So we'll see if that happens. But now, it's extremely dangerous. I mean, I don't want to walk out of the door. It's, you know, I'm not ready to die, for God's sake. So, yeah, it's a dilemma. I mean, it's very, it's a surreal moment that the book should come out on the dawn of this. But in another way, uh, I think that the book shows a moment in time where there was a lot of joy. It was another way to live. And I think in a way people are going to enjoy the book for that reason. So, so we'll and, see what happens.
0: And this, just to, to clarify, this is the book which is, yes, The, the coquettes, Acid Drag, and Sexual Anarchy. This, this is, the, is this the one or am I getting Yes. Good? This is it. Yes. So this is, this is it going book. to be available in all? Not the not. Books,
1: available hit the warehouse i'm about to i got an advanced copy of it they the review copies have gone out i've been doing phone interviews all this week the first phone interview i did was with the new york times thank you very much um and uh, i'm going to be getting copies and the, the copies will be in bookstores probably in about a week so uh Yes, it's available. Uh, as far as the UK, I, I don't know if uh, Brexit has interfered with any of that, but there should be copies available because I know that Feral House has uh, a UK distributor. So hopefully the copies will be in the UK soon. Yes. But I would have to find out about that. Yes. Well, and it... I want to come to the UK and do events because I do a fabulous slideshow and do a talk and then Q&A and sign books. It's really fun. Oh well, my God! Uh, we've been in a lot of museum shows. And so, I mean, we've had I've had my work in 10 museum shows. And with each one, I go there and, and do a talk and a slideshow. So I've really developed it quite a bit and it's really fun so I'm awesome. looking I'm looking forward to that I mean possibly that will be a year delayed but I'm sure at some point I'll be able to do that so I look forward to coming to London, definitely. Oh,
0: my God, that would be amazing. I mean, it is an amazing story. I mean, I am, I am positively desperate to get a copy of your book now. Oh, good, good. <laughs> but yes, well, I'll just have to wait. But uh, it is incredible. So, I mean, it's kind of tricky, but I often ask people, what, what would they say to an 18-year-old self, you know, starting out? If, you, if there was one little thing that you think oh actually you know it's all fine but kid just do something or you know I just I just wonder if there was one thing you thought yeah that would have been kind of a a good thing to have thought about or had done just to sort of yeah just to do before you um, launched quite literally into this incredible
1: world well get educated I think that's the most important thing and um don't go for the money. Try to, I mean, everybody's so oh, live your dreams and create. It's much more difficult now than it was for me to do. But uh, I would say try to do that as much as possible and try to avoid being a corporate slave. I mean, here in this country, they've gobbled up young people like crazy. Um, the tech community, they hire them, they, they, they hire them for a time and then throw them out and it, you know they're they're chewing up young people and they don't give them a future um, so I would say try to create your own future as you would like to live it and not go for the money because it's not going to last and it isn't going to make you happy so yes and with and and with
0: you know this incredible and amazing life I mean have you managed to sort of keep? A nice kind of vibe with a lot of the people that you've lived with, or not lived with. Oh, absolutely,
1: absolutely. I'm friends with all my lovers, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, oh yeah, I have legions of of people that I love. Absolutely, yes. And uh, you know, Facebook is fabulous because I can uh, still uh, talk to them, see them, and yeah. Now you've got FaceTime. I mean. I think for my generation, it's it's worked out as a positive thing yeah. because, uh, you know, being our age, we don't uh, hop around as much as we used to. But So now we've got uh, all this technology to he- keep us connected. I mean, I have friends that I've known for more than 50 years, you know. Yeah. Um, my and, college roommate and I are still best friends. But, is, yeah, and yeah. I was just going to say, I mean –
0: You know, having spoke to a lot of people over the years, I mean, people sometimes have this kind of element of sort of, I don't know, slight irritation or bitterness or some sort of angst. But you come in, you know, speaking to you, you have absolutely none of that. You haven't you haven't let anything kind of wear you down or you don't you don't you don't seem to be grinding an axe or sort of feeling kind of a little bit like, God, that's, that, you know, I don't, you know what I mean? You, you know, you're very coherent, but you're very light with it. You don't have a, a heaviness within your soul.
1: I think I was just born that way. I've, I've always been an optimistic and, and a happy person. Uh, and I, I always try to look beyond the uh, problems of the moment. Um, I didn't have the best childhood Um, but I remember being in my own world when I was a child. I really created my own world and I was very much alone in it and thought about the future. I was always thinking about the future and what kind of a life I was going to create, who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do, despite whatever the current situation was. I kind of lived on the other side of my childhood and then went right full bore into my future. I mean, uh, you know, I left that behind and, uh, I think many people in my generation had the same type of childhood. Um, certainly people in the gay community had, uh, were aliens in their family or in the community. And, A lot of the people that went into the counterculture in San Francisco came from uh, an environment that did not include them. So um, it was kind of the way I grew up, always looking to the future and always recreating whatever my life was going to be. I mean, I'm not going to say that I've never been depressed or anxious or anything like that. Certainly this current situation with the virus has given me an anxious moment. But... um, you know, there's a just a everyone is going through it. So everyone is supportive of each other. And that's also key is to be with people who are gonna be supportive. You and you know, as a woman, I I don't go into any kind of a situation where somebody is going to take hold of me and take and tell me what to do. Uh I I don't I've never done that and I've always been independent and um that's difficult for a lot of women. You know, they, the, the dependency problem, um, you know, I've, I've had problems with drugs, but I managed to get past that. So I take on whatever it is, whatever is coming my way. And, uh, I stay strong and deal with it. You mm. know, I, I, I don't want anything to overtake me. And, uh, you know, I, I want to live. <laughs> I want to live. It sounds like an old movie title, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, you know, I love life. I really do, and I, I have ever since I was a, you know, I was a little kid, and I, I remember as a child, you know, I would get off on my bike and ride way out everywhere. I lived in a place where there was a lot of rural. There would be fields, and I'd lay in the field, and I can remember thanking God for my life. And just loving the fact that I was here in this incarnation and living. So uh, I distinctly remember that as a child. So I think that really has carried me over the many hurdles that uh, have been confronted. you know i've I've uh, been confronted with. So actually, yeah. <laughs> that's that's this incarnation for me. That's the way it's been.
0: Yes. Well, fantastic. Well, look, this has been amazing. So, thank you ever so much for your time. And, and your work is boggling. It's just beautiful and it's amazing. Thank so, you. It's just, thank and you I'm so, so, much. so excited to see this uh, publication. I will, I will, um, yes, find it somehow. It will be.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, look for it. I will. And the ar- I'll I have to ask say, the publisher about that. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, what the, the situation is the artwork looks amazing. Thank you. Well, it's a photo book. It's primarily a photo book. And I was the art director. So I wanted it to be colorful. And I wanted it to have elements that were part of the aesthetic of uh, the coquettes. So I definitely wanted it to mirror our aesthetic and be different. I didn't want it to look like other books because we weren't like anyone else. And so, um, I mean, the book I envisioned was even more (laughs) than what I was able to do in this book. So for me, I'm looking for the next book. You know, I want to do a deluxe edition with more photos and a DVD. That's, you know, this only whetted my appetite for making another book, really. But, you know, that's kind of typical of the way I think yes so yeah oh, on to the next Excellent. yeah absolutely look
0: well look take care there um keep the dog keep the dog happy
1: yes <laughs> he's keeping me happy yes keep him barking. he's adorable he loves to cuddle it's yeah. fabulous nice nice he's well look too. thank you
0: ever so much and do you know hopefully i'll see see you in london or, or england soon
1: absolutely i'll let you know i'll um i'll let you know exactly when i come and then you can spread the word. It'll be fantastic. Oh, that'll be
0: magic. Look, All right. Take care and have a beautiful day.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And you too. Stay so stay safe and stay well. Absolutely. I know.
0: That's our mantra this year.
1: That's our mantra for sure.
0: Take care there.
1: All right, you too. I'll talk to you soon. Take See care. you soon. Yeah, bye. Bye bye.